Hello, everybody. This is Matthew Galt, the host of Cyber. I'm just going to briefly introduce what you're about to hear. Uh, all this past week, we did nothing but talk about Dune on Cyber. If you've noticed, there's quite a few episodes that have come out of that. Uh, we recorded them live, as we are doing now, on Motherboard's Twitch channel, which is at twitch.tv forward slash Motherboard TV. Go there to follow us, and you can watch Cyber be recorded live from now on. It'll be uploaded as a podcast soon after. But going forward, we are recording Motherboard's Cyber Podcast live, direct to Twitch. I will see you there. Without further ado, here's the last conversation we have about Dune. This is our very, very last episode of Motherboard Does Dune. Motherboard, Dune, Dune. Um, again, I saved it for last Ren right now. And we have, uh, I think, a really great cast of folks to round us out and, and, and take us home here. We have uh, Tim Marchman, uh, returning champion from Every single other episode, I think it's just me and you have been the only two. I think steady presences in this the entire uh, Eric Keen uh, endeavor here. Um, and we have Ed Angueso Jr., motherboard staff writer and Dune head. Um, and then our special and Matt Matt Galt is behind the boards today, also a motherboarder and and Dune extraordinaire. Um, and we have two special guests, Kelsey Atherton, the author of Wars of Future Past, a fantastic newsletter about exactly what that title describes. And we have Daniel Immervar, the historian of Empire and noted Dune scholar, um, which we've referenced your work, if you haven't heard, uh, throughout the the entire series here and there. So oh, for yeah. anyone who's, you know, listened to this whole thing, uh, we this will be kind of satisfyingly i hope drawing it to it to a close um because today our topic will be uh uh war and geopolitics of dune and sort of what was going on when herbert was writing this and how it uh sort of r- really sort of emanated in 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 the decades following uh yes matthew we can hear your clacking keyboard uh but you know it's it's kind of charming. Maybe it's like uh, somebody who's doing the controls on a on a harvester or something. So to kick things off, as is our uh, ritual, we have we has everyone seen the movie? Our new uh, newcomers, especially. Yeah, yeah. And your thoughts as a historian and and Dune scholar, Daniel? What do you think? Oh, I fucking loved it. I, I was just in heaven. It was so good. It doesn't even matter. I mean, the, like there's these great moments when he messes with the plot and you're just like, yeah, it works. It works so well. It's so visually incredible. The music is extraordinary. And you know, it has this way of kind of incepting your own sense. Like I, I've been thinking about Dune and the characters of Dune and Duncan Idaho and all that kind of stuff. Jason Momoa is my Duncan Idaho. That's how it, that's how he looks now. Uh, and so that's, I mean, that's kind of what you want in a movie like that. I thought it was terrific. Nice. Kelsey? Yeah, I think um, I think it's a triumph at making the world feel lived in and real, which is a tall ask for here is science fiction without any computers. Um, and they do an amazing job of carrying that out, of leaving out voiceover. Um, 
the time that uh, it takes to set up everything where you don't even get really to like events of the book until an hour or so in um, is well spent. I think it really grounds the universe um, and it borrows a lot from like, how do we make this feel as meaningful and haunting when the material is rich in many ways, but it's a, um, it certainly has, it has the book has its moments of being a hurdle to get through or to, to it throws you in the deep end. And this, doesn't um i really like that nice now matt what, what what did you think can you beam in as a disembodied voice as a can i beam in as the disembodied voice here yeah uh so i should have fixed the the audio there were some audio issues in the chat if someone will will tell me i believe everyone should be able to hear me now um cool yeah. thank you handy andy uh i i love the movie i thought it was fantastic um the to be to give me my my dune bona fides i've only read the first book uh i've seen the lynch movie and i've now seen this movie um and to me the most important thing about dune is that it is a story about a person that has a vision of their future which is rampaging across the universe um committing genocide at a galactic level and says let's do it and they captured that in the film um, and so I think like, so you're going to love the next three books. I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I was kind of one of those people who was like, I don't need to read the rest of them. But now after watching the movie, I'm kind of like, I kind of want to read the rest of these now. I'm very interested. So I, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I already liked, uh, him. I thought, I think Blade Runner is better. Blade Runner 2049 is better than Blade Runner personally for me. So I was already bought in. Sorry, wow, that's spicy. <laughs> nice. Sorry, it's Whoa. just the truth. Ridley Scott Five doesn't. Peppers. Ridley Scott doesn't understand the films that he makes, and he accidentally makes good ones now and then, but mostly they're bad. Sorry. <laughs> that is extremely zesty. I could not disagree more on Blade. The Ridley Scott thing is maybe, but he's made enough good ones where it's like okay, sometimes maybe in a certain point. I mean, maybe it's the maybe it's like the Frank Herbert effect, right? Like. Frank Herbert, like, clearly was out of his mind all over the place. And, like, he landed on one book, at least, where everything aligned. Like, Dune 1, everything works. It's epic. It's exciting. It's got all the ideas packed in. The rest of them have, like, shades of it. And, you know, but it does seem scattershot. Like, you know, we've mentioned before how you've got, like, a giant talking, sentient worm being, like, ruling the galaxy by, like, book four. So it's like... Now that just makes me want to read it more. <laughs> actually yeah so i yeah so i respond to that by saying like maybe like i don't i i i i, I we don't need to talk about ridley scott or blade runner i think any more uh than that but your point is taken i agree i also but i did not like the last blade runner but i did like this dune um and now we know that we're getting a sequel and we uh, are sort of for sure going to venture further into this territory. A what sequel, do our, what do, a sequel, an HBO TV show about the Benny Gesserit, and he's already talking about doing the third book. Yeah, perfect, good. Yeah. <laughs> and as, as we were as we were discussing before we went live, um, obviously they're going to spin this IP out into every format imaginable, which is delightful. I can't wait to play like. A uh, Bethesda Dune game, <laughs> you know. I'm you ready for play the jihad in the Bavarian jihad. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, it will. It will absolutely. It. I mean, 
I think we all knew after the weekend. It was only after it got forty million. After like not only that, but like it also. I don't know if it was like quite Squid Game level fervor, where like everybody was talking about it, but it was pretty high. It has like the stars. It had its own online meme with the Dune thing. It had like all everything was aligned. And I like I'm really curious. And we talked briefly about this in one other stream, but I'm curious as to what's going on behind the scenes because it seems like there's maybe some bad blood between Denis and like the studios because just the fact that they didn't immediately greenlight it, the fact that he was mad that they simulcast it with the HBO thing the fact that like there was like a little more like usually you get a blockbuster and it's like immediate it's like yes we're giving you we understand you the people we're giving you everything you want I am so fucking done with these directors it's been a year and a half like at some point they have to realize there's plague going around and you know no it's not going away and they like I get how much they want people to see it on 60 story tall screens but like they 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 need to stop with this petulant whining that seems to be to be something you talk to your your buddies about over a drink uh as opposed to going on about it at length in in and incessantly in every interview you give this is just a pet peeve of mine like i know where they're coming from but it it you know it's, it's a strange it's a strange thing I agree with you on that. But I will say also, like, seeing it in theaters is was very different from seeing it at my home. You know, yeah. the visuals are alone, but also the voice, the way the yeah. voice rattles my fucking body in the theater was so good. Yes. That was I can't wait I to see it there because, like, Daniel was talking about the sound design. I've seen it twice at home now, and I don't have, like, a super fancy setup or anything. Um, but the second time, one of the things that really stuck out to me the most was the music and the sound design. And like, I'm really looking forward to having that wash all over me. One of the things I really liked about, uh, Blade Runner 2049 was same and just, you know, it rattling your teeth as the cars were flying over the post-apocalyptic cityscapes. Um, so having that like physical experience with the sound is, is something I'm definitely looking forward to. Yeah. I love, you know, Lynch had a good designs but his voice is like Aaliyah my one of my favorite scenes in all of movie and cinema where it's like Aaliyah the kid be like get out of no it's the reverend mother being like get out of my mind and then Aaliyah's like oh not until you tell me um and that's it that's the voice but here it was just kind of shocking it really does it's really fucking unnerving and no one also no one spoiled that little trick that they did in their reviews and I was wondering what they were all talking about when they described the voice because um, they're like, oh, it does it in a, in a weird way. And I was like, oh, it's just going to distort it, right? But yeah, so I can see on some level if he's like a fanatic about Dune, why he would want everyone to be like, you have to see it. You have to see it in theater. But also, yeah. So let me... Yeah, is whining. <laughs> can I put this to the group then? Because mm-hmm. um, I've been kind of watching this discourse build over the past week. I've been kind of fascinated to see this story like take root and people get really invested in it and interested in it. Um, and I also noted that, you know, Apple right now is airing its adaptation of the Foundation Trilogy, which is also a story about a guy who has a prescient vision of what the next thousand years are going to be like amidst a collapsing empire. And I have to ask, why are these particular stories resonating right now? Is Foundation resonating? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's fair enough. That's, Somebody's all right. Fair, yeah. fair enough. Okay, so someone's making Foundation, but the darkest, the darkest version of it, right, 
the the Dune version, that's the one that's really resonating with people. Yeah. Right. I think in part um go ahead, Daniel. Uh no, I was just gonna say there's a um really cool sci-fi article from the nineteen eighties uh by this guy named John Grigsby where he points out something that, you know, I think maybe some of us had vaguely sensed. Dune is a response to Foundation. It's the same plot, right? It's the family goes out, or not the family, but this group goes out to the edge of the galaxy while the empire is declining and there's this chance for rejuvenation, except, and, you know, prescience is a huge part of it. And then it turns out to be entirely different, right? Uh, Foundation is about how people who foresee things are correct and everyone who screws it up just needs to be, you know, got in line. It's very much a, like... CIA view of, you know, superintending world affairs kind of thing. And uh, Frank Herbert, who's writing in the Vietnam era, has a very different take. And, you know, as you get into the Dune saga, you end up with Paul, who's the kind of Harry Seldon of the Dune universe, blind and walking around in the desert, having like, you know, genocided billions of people. And and that, you know, so so the argument is that these these two things are responding to each other. And I would totally agree that right now Dune feels like it strikes all the all the chords and foundation, you know. Yeah, I th- I think a lot of it is a response to Marvel, honestly. I mean, I'm a big Marvel fan. I've seen pretty much all the movies. I love them for what they are. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not someone who who's hating on them, but they're they're getting really fucking samey. And they've been on top for a really long time now. And something that you can sink you know, sink your teeth more into that has some subtext that, uh, you know, is still in the same broad genre. I think people are ready for that. I'm excited to see what other projects people can do. Like if you want to talk about a book written by a lunatic with incredibly objectionable ideas that is really ripe for uh, a big movie adaptation, like the moon is a harsh mistress. Moon is a harsh mistress would be, that could be a really fun property to see adapted there. You know, there, there are a lot of things. Um, we have yeah, not even Ursula begun Guin. to explore the, the perversions of, of Robert Heinlein, <laughs> right. the Heinlein verse. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, those are interesting points. Uh, especially because like we're seeing them lined up almost like Dune has like emerged at like in a viewing, like anyone who has started watching foundation can now view Dune as a response to that. And it's not complete. It's only the first half, but the other, like, Contend- I've been thinking about this too, and I've got like a half-baked take bouncing around my skull about like why f- Apple dumped. Obviously, like the, the the director was on record saying that he spent more on most movies on like a couple episodes of Foundation um, than than most of the movies that he does. Uh, it's the, the huge budget. They obviously took a huge swing, and like nobody's talking about fan- Foundation. Like Squid Game came out two weeks later and then it's off the map and it's all about sort of a, a, a critiques of, of, of capitalism and like living in this sort of crushing moment. And then Dune comes along and undermines that, that sort of Harry Seldon thing. So I do think that there's maybe some configuration where like Harry Seldon is the hero that sort of neoliberalism wants, right? The, the wise man who says like, follow all the rules incrementally and slowly, but surely we will build a, a, foundation on which to have a equitable and good global it will take you know i don't i can't tell you how long it'll take it'll take like hundreds of thousands of years like you will never live to see it but just trust me like the world is slowly getting well, better that's, i think what makes dune in part resonate so much for the moment is especially and i think um sort of the genius of taking so much time to set up the events and then to also like show 
what is it that the Atreides are being called to do? What is the system? What is this universe? And like there, there's factors we know, like there, there's lots of machinations all at once. But fundamentally, um, Dune is almost a story, or at least this part of Dune, it's a story of the Emperor coup-proofing himself against any instit- challenge within the institutions of the universe as they're structured, right? Like the reason you pull the Harkonnen off only to invite them back is to utterly crush a charismatic rival who could, through politicking, unite the the uh, Landsrad against the uh, cruelties of the executive and break up things. And the Empire has settled on stagnation as its path forward. Um, and so that's sort of the, the game you play. It's a thing we see in um, complex systems of, like, of statelets and... Uh, uh, concert systems is how do you crush anyone who is trying to break an established um, status quo that benefits the already powerful? Um, and not that like the Atreides are obviously a part of the system, but I think it's really telling that like Lido plays by the rules and tries to play by them very well and just absolutely massacred. And so when you have, um, there's that moment where Paul is trying to um, in, in the ecological station, start maneuvering in the same way. And Liette says, like, you can't do this. You are a child on the run. Um, And that's sort of where we see the shift from what does it take to break out of a flawed, stagnant world? And then if there's a flawed, stagnant world that's resonating, um, well, that's because that's where we're at right now. Uh, Right. right. And not only a flawed... Yeah, exactly. And not only a flawed, stagnant world, but one sort of governed by the, you know, the inertia of these systems that are, are, are so vast. And we've talked a little bit in a previous book, and I'm really curious to hear yours and, and Daniel's and Ed's thoughts about about this, about to the extent that it comes across that, like, that you you know in the books it's very clearly sort of there's like a hierarchy of sort of interests that are somewhat interlocking but some have more power than others and maybe chome being like the stand in for opec and this and like the trade guild has maybe the most power that the emperor has to kind of adhere to and then there's the emperor and then there's the noble houses um but how much sense in the film do we get that all of these sort of you know generational institutions and oppressors are sort of uh you know, really kind of immutably moving the action and setting the stage here. Daniel. Oh, I was, I was just, uh, um, yeah, sure. I mean, (laughs) look, they have to mute it, right? You cannot do like a deep dive into chome politics in the film. It's just going (laughs) to kill it. I mean, I, you know, I would be up for it, but no one else would be. Um, But actually it's handled. I thought it was handled really well where you see there's an imperial reshuffling, but you get it from the Fremen perspective. You get it from Chani's perspective. And she's like, I wonder who our next oppressors will be. And you're like, that's all you really need to get. Like there's, there's this imperial chessboard that goes around that, you know, games are being played and something is changing and it kind of matters for the Atreides, but for the Fremen, it almost doesn't matter at all. Uh, and, and, you know, since the film is ultimately going to like suck you into the Fremen world, like it's a journey from the Atreides world to the Fremen world. I think that does it very, very nicely and, and concisely. Yeah, you know, I think it's also like in the book he has that he has uh, set up, he sets up a lot of time to try to get you into that mode of thinking. Trades good, Arconan bad, noble, decadent, right? Um, and it's only in the once they're really like in the desert or 
that you start to see one, you were like, what, what's actually going to happen with Paul? Um, but that also that, that sort of framing didn't really make much sense. And I think like, like you said, it, it was really good to just kind of focus on the Fremen and then also show a little bit of the, of Leto being trying to be like, we can do it better. You know, we just got to fix the machines and, and I got to care for my workers and if things will be good at, and, and ignoring that fundamentally or obscuring the fact that like he views the Fremen, he'll, he says he wants to work with them, but he also views them as a pawn in the larger scheme to try to like contain and challenge the emperor that is hinted at a few times in the dialogue they have in the movie. And also that, he doesn't seem to understand the nature of the spice operation and that it is like an extractive, impressive process. But the Fremen resists and that he can say he's going to be different, you know, and he can say he's going to be nicer, but there's still going to be conflict and tension there. Yeah, we've, we've discussed this uh, briefly previously in, in some of our conversations, but I've seen some criticism that uh, Duke, Duke Leto is a bit wooden and, and virtuous and, and good. And I, that's just not what I saw in the movie. I mean, the way he wants to instrumentally use the Fremen um, for his own purposes, the way he doesn't seriously engage with their culture in any way past not having Stolgar decapitated for spitting on his table, um, does not paint a flattering picture of him or how he approaches the political economy. Uh, of desert world. power, right? He just like literally just keeps saying desert power. <laughs> I, I love yeah. like they're that's, a that's... unit to be summoned in an RTS game, right? Yeah, it's like a trap card in Yu Gi Oh! Yeah, <laughs> and so with, with desert power, I think it's also important that he is obviously right, like Chome is our OPEC stand in. Um, but Desert Power, he's writing at a time of um post colonial like struggle. There's a very clear context. Um, I saw, I want to uh hopefully got the name right. I think Khaldun Khalil was citing. Um, it's a lot of like, you can see the parallels to the Algerian war of independence and some of the phrasing and names. There's a whole lot of like, what we have is we see Lido, we see Lido as an enlightened sort of uh, colonist, but he's an enlightened colonist. He's looking to desert power and the ultimate struggle. And certainly we see this uh, explained by Lee and hopefully we get a lot more of it in part two. And we showed it in the text about like what desert sovereignty is, what it is for the Fremen to be sovereign over their own world, because we have, we have barely any, like the, the Fremen are part of the world and we know that they either exist in independent communities or in some sort of debased form where they're like begging for water on the streets of Arakeen. Um, and he's writing in this context and he's writing in this context and also like fully aware of like the, the uh, Lawrence of Arabia narrative of an empire goes in, it turns to the people in the desert, it sees them as a tool for power, it makes promises it cannot keep, and then the people are sold out at the end. That's a, that's intentionally in the narrative because that's what he's responding to. That's a big part of it is understanding that desert power is a, is a phrase for exploitation. It's an, it acknowledges the strength, but it's not really like these are people with a different understanding of the world. Can I ask a, a lore question? Are the Fremen, did, did they, were they, were the humans that began on that planet, where did they come from? Oh, that's it, a good question. They're off, they're off world. They are off They're world? all humans. They're all humans. These are all earth, earth people. And there is a gentle explanation of the backstory in some of the later novels with how the Fremen got there, but they were not, I mean, they're kind of indigenous in a kind of symbolic sense, but, right. but they're all from earth. Right. Right. Like, but long, long time ago. Yeah, long, long time ago. Yeah. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, so, so speaking of lore, we're here to discuss, among other things, geopolitics. And I wanted to toss out something that uh, does not appear to be in the movie so far. It does play a reasonably prominent role in the books which is atomics. The, there is a kind of uh, structure of mutually assured destruction among the different houses. There's uh, a, a vast and serious taboo on the use of weapons, and in a lot of ways, the big houses are defined by their possession. I'm not sure of this, but I think that they may be the only entities allowed to hold them. Um, and they have... You know, these weapons have uh, effects on the shields that are used. It's it's one of those things that's lurking there in the background, but that makes a lot of sense of the way warfare is fought and the way power is exercised. That was left out. So I'm curious for the room. Um, if anybody has thoughts on that, what the emission does and, you know, whether it's a big deal. It's It's one of those details that I missed. I thought it would have taken... Uh, two lines of dialogue and clarified some of the political jostling and, and the military structure of this universe. You, you yeah, it's could, like some of, you know, Oh, go on, go ahead. I was just going to say, you can always tell when a sci-fi story was written or produced by how it deals with nuclear weapons. Um, it tells you a lot about the era in which the, the, the work was written in. And I think that the fact that they are completely absent from the film in any way, uh, is an economy of making a movie kind of thing, but also very telling about the way we think about nuclear weapons right now. Sorry. That's my, my hot take on that. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say like, they also like kind of vacated a lot of, a lot of the tech or a lot of the discussions of tech, right? They don't talk about the butlering jihad. They don't talk about, as we talked about in one episode, how the absence of computers leads to all these like factions that deal with engineering humans. Uh, They don't, talk about like the reason why the shields are used and why lasers aren't used, even though that's like the depiction in most sci-fi, right? Because the lasers, if you hit them with the shields, they blow up the entire area. And so they, they just do hand-to-hand combat. Um, there's, and instead I think like part of me feels like it was, it was just shot off because he, the story he's crafting, it may not alter the, geopolitics of it right if he's not going to end up telling the larger story of the dune universe and instead tell that initial story of paul you know his journey into the world of the fremen his attempt to um usurp the emperor his his uh, years after that then they then they may not focus too much on that fundamental element of the geopolitics instead kind of focus on like paul becoming a or becoming worshipped as a god and what that actually does to the empire the replication of you know imperialism across the, uh, his dominion instead of like these are how the houses balance off against one another because he smashes the system essentially uh moon yeah. rpgs in the chat says that yes only the great houses have atomics 
to answer and that Daniel, question. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear your context too, Daniel, as a as a historian of of, of empire. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a version of Dune where it starts out there like there are various warring houses, and each of them has a cache of atomic weapons, and you're like, this is the dragons in Game of Thrones. Like this, you know, those those are Chekhov's atomic weapons. Those are going to go off in the third act, of course, right? Because like these are fights between these houses, and they all have atomic weapons, and that's not what happens at all. And in fact, the that kind of mutually assured destruction standoff becomes, which is both at the level of atomic weapons, but then lower at the level of guns because they have all these shields, uh, becomes a way for Frank Herbert to get us into a, a kind of medieval-y sort of vibe where it's all daggers and poison is how people do each other. Uh, but B, I mean, just, you know, in his world to get this away from being a great power competition and to get us into anti-colonial rebellions. So it's it's about people with low tech. I mean, it's not the Fremen or no tech. They have the still suits and all that kind of stuff. But 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 the 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 way to win a war is is not by, like, no one cares how many atomics you have. Um, it all ultimately comes down to this kind of indigenous or colonized, uh, you know, people who have a kind of different relationship to technology and, and they win. Um, and I think Frank Herbert, I mean, this is not a cold war. Frank Herbert is deeply interested in the cold war and he writes a cold war novel that doesn't get published earlier than this. And he writes another one that does get published earlier than this, but this is not a Soviet union versus us cold war. This is very much the like Algerian war of independence. This is an anti-colonial war kind of vibe that we're getting. It's really, really interesting. I haven't really thought of that like element of Dune it, taking the four. It really doesn't. But ever, pretty much everybody has like I guess the sense of mutually assured destruction is so like is is so atomized and it's so like everybody lives with it. So I mean, are they all? Because everybody has these shields that goes into battle, and if somebody uses the you know it shoots a laser at them, it could set off a chain reaction, right? That's kind of the explanation that's given. It's not really returned to a lot, but it's like right, like it's just like this is the reality of the world. Someone pulls the wrong trigger, and it could happen in like a hand to hand combat situation. Almost someone like brings a gun to a knife fight, it could like. completely ruin society so that gives you a sense to matt that was an interesting point about how different eras like process this threat of nuclear destruction but here it's like every single soldier is carrying around with that or at least aware of it on some level maybe they've forgotten about it because it's so rote yeah they never use it they never but they never use it because it's terrifying it also reminds me i just sorry kelsey one one more i just this is just on my mind because i just read foundation and again to think of them kind of in conversation with each other the written in the the 40s and 50s like the way asimov talks about nuclear stuff as basically like a miracle cure for everything right and like the the back end of all the great technologies all this all this atomic power is, is again really Interesting to contrast with where we get to just a couple, you know, two decades later when Dune comes out. Sorry, Kelsey. So I think one of the things that uh, really, really has struck me, and this might just be because I, I have uh, the verge uh, from Patrick Wyman fresh on my mind, but something that we see with the houses and we see this sort of concert power system is what counts for military skill is professionalism. It's what sets the Atreides apart from the Harkonnens. It's what makes the Sardaukar so much better and why you would go to the emperor. What does the emperor have control over if the emperor doesn't directly control Spice? The emperor controls an incredibly powerful mercenary unit that he dispatches um, or he contracts out. Um, and what makes them powerful is is uh, discipline and cultist ritual and all those those uh, very heightened training and warrior culture things. But specifically, 
they're a well-equipped, well-supplied professional military that ends up becoming a component of other militaries. It's how you tip a scale. Um, and we see this, we saw this with like, this is when like the, the, the emergence of like professional armies before they were national armies, you'd have like professional mercenary bands that would contract between the various part, uh, nations of or uh, kingdoms really of Europe in the 15th and 16th century. And so we have that layer, right? That's how you get your, your, how do you have many powers who don't fight total wars against each other? Um, you have that sort of professional army doing this, this melee combat. And then you also have it layered on top of colonial war. Um, and I think they could, they should have thrown in a line about the bootlegging jihad. They should have mentioned something. It, it feels a little absent, but we see its effects where I think the, the key moment for me um, which struck this time that I hadn't seen before or really hadn't said in before is that the hunter seeker, right? That little drone that comes out to uh, at, at kill Paul has a pilot who had to live in a hole in a wall for six weeks in order to do it. And, um, and this is, this is obviously like my, my, my day job beat is all about drones and things, but specifically that you need to have a remote pilot that close because it's a, it's not just illegal, but it's verboten. It's culturally taboo to have a computer that could do it all remotely anyway, um, really gives a texture to the world and why you need this kind of uh, visceral proximity of people in conflict. I agree. And I think one of the things that's really well done in the book and well done in the movie is just following through the logical extensions of some of the stuff that you do have. These are tiny, tiny armies. Uh, you know, the Atreides legions that are supposed to be so ominous. It's a few, you know, it's, it's like a couple of thousand guys, which is, I don't know if realistic is the way I want to use word I want to use there, but you know, it's in line with uh, medieval and Renaissance combat in a broad sense. And it leads to these things like the Sardaukar's legion annihilating, uh, Offensive is basically just firing a few rockets, something you can do without computers. You know, you can you can just target those and drop them on these guys. And it really sets up the Fremen wave of conquest because, you know, they are fighting an anti-colonial war and they're tapping their entire population. They're going to have, you know, their people of military age out sweeping across the universe when these other houses have, you know, if the Atreides are you know, potentially in a position to, to pitch over the emperor with their military power, you know, consists of, you know, enough people to fill like a a really big movie theater, um, having hundreds of thousands of, of Fremen bent on, uh, you know, bent on their destruction makes a lot of sense. I have another lore question kind of in line with this, if we can, um, is the Fremen population much greater than some of the populations of other planets? Cause I was kind of struck when they talk about that in the, in the movie about how, just how many people there are living on this planet that you just don't know about, right? Tens of thousands of people uh, underneath the surface of this place. And then I, I was, you know, watching it, I was always thinking like, what is life like for quote unquote, a normal person on any of these other planets that is not Dune? Is there even like a like what we would think of as like a serf or a merchant or anything in this universe at all? That's one of the things that we've talked about as being a, especially kind of a. I mean, it, it's not really gotten into much in the in the books. We're pretty preoccupied with 
with with, with Dune, uh, but especially in the movie, it's just kind of you're either one of the troops or you are a Fremen or you're off world plotting to or you're a Sardaukar. Like you're you, it's not we don't ever get a good snapshot of like daily life um of like what what this whole world something that a film like star wars did a lot you know you get the you can kind of construct how like the basic sort of interactions between people or the economy would work this is very much kind of you're moving from the military to the fortress you know uh castle in whatever it is looming over arakeen and then you're sort of dispersed from it um yeah because it's like that military only, then the only other kind of look into non-military life is like underworld, you know, like where there's implications when they meet the Fremen in the desert, like, oh, you could you can get people off world where it's like, OK, where if you if you can do that, you have to do that without the spacing guild, which runs interstellar commerce and trade. So it's like some, you know, yeah. And same with the other world, like Caladan, the Atreides home planet pretty much exists solely as like a watery surface for Paul to stare out meaningfully mm. over like oh, when he's contemplating yeah. leaving like we don't ever see any anything about what what those worlds look like I do think that's kind of a shortcoming at least because it's 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 fun to see it right like it kind of brings you into the movie more when you or into the world when you can kind of at least commune with that aspect of it we, we kind of get these big brutalist architecture scenes where there's like a few people oh, in the corner I mean it looks I great I, know it. It looks oh, I great. loved it so much it was, it's absolutely beautiful film <laughs> It does, yeah. though, I think, well, communicate, thing, like, the feudal nature, too, right? Because it's yes. like they're just living yes. in their castles and fortresses. They have no idea what the life is for an, uh, any person outside their family and their church. That's a good point. Yeah. And they mentioned, um, too, right, that it's not like the Caladan are all um, uh, just pure loyalty to it. Because if you, you wouldn't specify that you rule Caladan by air power and sea power if you didn't have a reason to use that against someone there there's nothing more in that and i uh, encourage everyone to never read the dune prequel books which get into it um but there's certainly a line there right that this is these are feudal holdings almost right these are feudal holdings that are passed around and so the houses have a relation to power there and to subjects but it's not like this is like the caladan nation state is atreides right yeah well i think this is actually a pretty good segue to uh, to to um, ask ask you, Daniel, a little bit about because again we've kind of hinted at your work and we've gestured at your work uh, throughout this. If you could, if we could maybe take a step back now that we've kind of established some of these things about how the movie portrays these facets of empire and um, and how it is in the books, could you give us sort of the Cliff's Notes version of of you know what what this foundation is is built upon some of your work i know you you, you wrote a great article um a great journal article about this and you have a great presentation that folks should check out on youtube if you are interested in the long version but um yeah what is what is hank her what is uh, frank herbert conjuring into being here i'll confess that i this all came as a surprise to me i I'd read the first two novel, I'd known it. Um, and then I got asked by a magazine to, when we thought the movie was coming out a year ago, to you know do a Dune essay. I'm sure a lot of writers got that same request from different periodicals. And so I thought, all right, it's great. Uh, and I read about Empire, and I knew that Dune was a story about empires. And I, I was like, well, maybe there's something there. And you know, I'll, I'm sure the answer is going to be about the Middle East, right? This is going to be a story about... Middle Eastern politics, because Dune so visibly and aggressively conjures up Middle Eastern imagery. And Frank Herbert read a lot about Middle Eastern history. And, you know, Dune starts appearing just after um, Lawrence of Arabia drops and wins a bunch of Oscars. 
And then what I discovered was different and, and compelling. And I kind of fell down this very deep rabbit hole. And what it was, was that Frank Herbert, that, that stuff about the Middle East is true. And Chome is OPEC and all, all that's correct. Um, but at the same time, Frank Herbert is, uh, he grew up and is writing often from Western Washington around the Olympic Peninsula. And there he is encountering and getting extraordinarily interested in indigenous politics, particularly politics that are from the um, Quileute people, which includes the Ho Band, which is now its own federally recognized tribe, uh, and the Quileute Reservation, which is at La Push. So uh, when Frank Herbert is young, he's, according to his son, semi-adopted for two years by a Ho man who just kind of teaches him how to live off the land. And, and Frank Herbert, in a number of his works of fiction, including in the Stilgar-Paul relationship, that replays that relationship, like younger, younger off-worlder, older native man teaching him how to like live off the land. You just see that constant. He's obsessed with this relationship. And then later in life, he um, befriends and becomes best friends with, with uh, someone who becomes godfather to his, his son, Brian, uh, a uh, Quileute man named Howard Hansen, who at the same time as Herbert is writing Dune, Hansen is writing his own book called Twilight on the Thunderbird, which is now published and we have it and you can get it on Amazon. Um, and the what it is is it's a um really kind of it's an auto ethnography account of what it is like to be Quileute at a time when the basis of Quileute life or the ecological basis uh is being decimated by logging. Uh and the Quileute reservation at La Push is being destroyed. And you know, Frank Herbert had worked for one of the most um rabid pro-logging senators and he'd worked at a logging firm. But he was quite clearly affected by this. And the story that Howard Hansen told him about uh, what industrial kind of production was doing to ecology and what that, that therefore was doing to culture, I think that really gets built into Dune. And, and even as Frank Herbert is writing Dune, you can kind of see him getting more and more kind of into Howard, ha uh, Howard Hansen's understanding. And, and everyone says that Hansen was really important to Herbert as Herbert was writing Dune. Um, and I think... I mean, you can also map the Fremen onto the Quileute, including the fact that um, uh, Quileute has a, is a whaling culture, and the Fremen are kind of organized their lives around these sort of sand whales, which are, are uh, the sandworms. Really interesting. Yeah. So, and in, so not only like a rabid pro business, but also a rabid, like very conservative, like yeah. Frank Herbert's politics. Super right are wing. Very, exactly right. Yeah. Super right wing. He was a, he was a, he was a journalist as well. He was kind of, you know, all over the place. And what, how old was he? Was he when he, when he was kind of, um, sort of taken under the wing or like really influenced by, by Hanson? Uh, well, when he first starts in, in, uh, really getting into indigenous politics is when he's semi-adopted. It's when he's Paul Atreides' age. Uh, and then he's still pretty young when he and Hanson become best friends. And he kind of just leaps at Hanson, meets him at a piano recital, and, and just is like, you're going to be my friend uh, in a way that, I mean, it's just so unusual for white dudes at this time to be really deeply into indigenous culture. There's a moment when he's a journalist, when Frank Herbert gets assigned to review a Jimmy Stewart Western. And like the normal thing is like, it's a very exciting Western, you know, acting could have been better, whatever. And Frank Herbert's entire review is like, let's talk about native genocide. You know, it's like, it just like goes paragraphs, paragraphs. He's like, movies, whatever, but like, can we acknowledge? And, and he's inc incredibly specific. He's like, here's the UN definition of genocide. Like, here's what happens to the Apache people. Like, he just goes on. And so this guy is from a very early moment touched by the wand and is, is quite clearly interested in figuring out how to make sense of 
indigenous people and indigenous life in the United States. And it's all exploding around him because, you know, I grew up in, you know, around Philadelphia, indigenous life was not in my face. You go up around the Olympic Peninsula, it is. Now, how much of this, when I, I raised this brief to another one of our guests, Mickey, Mickey Kendall, who's, who we were, our conversation was about race and, and eugenics and Dune and stuff. How much of this was, was like him, you know, his politic, he's like natural political mode in as much as we could describe something like that was kind of like libertarian, anti-government. I think you write that like in as much as that he has like a, a, a con, like a political lodestar, it's just like government bad, government yeah. will corrupt, like corrupt. Um, how much was he kind of, fetishizing the culture of of uh, of the quillute and, and and his and his friends there like how much was he kind of saying like this is like i see this as as like a noble thing that they're doing standing up for that and my affinity is because they are like pushing back against this this encroaching government or um it's a really interesting moment in the 60s when there's a number of white countercultural figures who get really inter- interested in native culture. Stuart Brand, Ken Kesey, the author of um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it's unclear which way it's all going to point, right? To be anti-government in the 60s, well, that could be anti-Vietnam War. That could be a very left position. Uh, to be pro-Indigenous, that can point any number of ways. For Herbert, it's the kind of back to the land, arm yourself, distrust the government. He takes it in a martial and a very right-wing direction, and he's really anti-Kennedy, but actually pro-Nixon, and he's, you know, pro-Reagan later on. Um, And, you know, indigenous culture can point that way. There are a lot of indigenous people who are incredibly hostile to the federal government for understandable reasons, and that can slot them into a libertarian politics as well. Um, The... Does he fetishize indigenous cultures? Yeah, I mean, it seems clear that he does, but also it's, it's not a distant fetishization. Um, he, he knows a lot. And as a reporter, he reports a lot on what's happening. He also, two times while he's writing the Dune franchise, he stops the Dune train to write a novel about indigenous politics in Western Washington, which is insane. I mean, just imagine from a profit perspective, that's bonkers. He's got more Dune story in him and he wants to write about a red power novel, which he does and which he publishes. Um, one of the it's unclear how much of this is a collaborative relationship between his indigenous interlocutors and how much of it is a kind of appropriation exploitive relationship. There's an interesting moment when his best friend Howard Hansen reads the Red Power novel, which is called Soul Catcher, and, and says, you know, this is great. I mean, a lot of um, Quileute stuff is coming up in this novel, which it's about Quileute peoples. Um, but uh, the ending is, is really like counter, like no Quileute person would ever do that thing that you have happening at the end. And Frank Herbert's like, yeah, well, whatever. So, so um, that's that's kind of one point of clear divergence where we know that he's hearing from indigenous people that he's getting it wrong, and he's just like, you know, the story needs to come out the way I want it to come out. Um, but it also is quite clear that he's doing ethnographic research, he's doing recordings, he's like learning indigenous folklore and songs, and he's and he's really seems to he's he's really into that. Um, so it's not an incurious form of fetishization. Just to throw some history here, too, that I think is, is interesting, as we forget in the late 1960s, early 70s, there was a pretty militant um, indigenous peoples movement in this country, right, that occupied Alcatraz. Yeah, that occupied yeah, Alcatraz yeah. and occupied Mount Rushmore um, and led to, I think, depending on which historians you talk to, led to the creation of some federal bureaus and mandates that started to, to try to alleviate um, some of the material conditions on the reservations, right? And when um, there's a version of there's so right after the Alcatraz occupation, there's an occupation of Fort Lawton, which is nearer to Herbert. 
he races to the scene to interview the leaders uh, and to report on it. And he gets very excited. And, and one of the things they want to do with the occupied fort is set up an ecological demonstration product project. Herbert loves this idea and then sets up one of his own on his own property. So uh, he's very much, you know, sympathetic to even if he doesn't fully accurately channel uh, the, these uh, red power politics of the 70s. Really interesting. I think it's also worth noting, and it's a really obvious point, but, you know, Washington, the the distance between Dune and Washington becoming a state isn't that much longer than the distance between us and Dune. Like, oh, I think that is like that is one <laughs> thing Whoa. that kind of runs through, um, you know, a lot of what Herbert's writing is that he, he does have this outsider's perspective um, in some ways. He's not fully committed to the. You know, he's not fully committed to, to, to America, I think, to concentrations of power. He doesn't um, he doesn't write like somebody who's fully committed to that project. I don't think there's anything much that suggests he was. And so as right wing as he was and as noxious as, you know, we're going to find his politics, I think in some ways he came by them. He came by them a little honest, honestly. Interesting. I think also that's a, d- a distinguishing factor between him and like other right wingers who like have this grab bag of ideas and believe that if the United States, if only the United States adhered to their personal ideology, then it would, um, you know, rejuvenate itself and be a good type of empire. Whereas we have, it seems like um, Frank Herbert insisting constantly that like it's a doomed project no matter who is in the helm no matter how charismatic they are no matter how gentle or noble they claim to be that it's still an empire which is a powerful insight and it very much distinguishes him from someone like Heinlein who I think his libertarianism was more of the I want to be able to marry a bunch of women and, <laughs> and like right. not get taxed right. Right. I don't think there's anything much more to it than which is one, yeah right <laughs> it's just funny also to see the interviews around the time where it's clear that's what's happening and he's like no I'm just I don't think people should trust in rulers and it's like okay is that what God Emperor is about? Is that what Chapter House is about? Yeah, I mean, there is a there is a Dune story where Herbert is getting hounded by the IRS because he just won't pay his taxes, and the the rate at which the later novels come out seemingly has a lot to do with his just like need to like pay taxes and and the fact that he might be arrested if he doesn't. It didn't work. It didn't get the IRS off his ass, but you know, he tried. Um, I just wanted to touch upon briefly um, while um, we're talking about like the, the sort of parallel between like atomic atomic power as the driver of like foundation and uh, and Frank Herbert obviously put spice instead as how you propel this universe. The um, the uranium mining in the American Southwest, which is primarily done by and in Native communities, I don't know if it's ever directly addressed by him, but that's very much a here is an extracted resource controlled by the federal government used for uh, purely um, or primarily destructive purposes, but certainly for the reification of the state. Uranium is a state resource. It's not really a trade commodity. And that's happening in parallel. Um, That's happening in parallel to a lot of this. And it certainly um, could see reflections of it in how in in the relationship between um, extraction on uh, Rockus. And when Frank Frank Herbert, one of his early political projects is about extractive mining. He on the in the seabed, uh, he's he's re, he works for a senator who's like very into that, and he's like the United States has made new territorial claims to its seabed right outside of its shores. We should be mining the shit out of this. 
uh, this is the new frontier. Fuck you, fish. Uh, and, I mean, he really, under, and you can see that in the spice mining, right? You can see it's his first novel is about under is offshore oil drilling and the romance of offshore oil drilling. And those submarines kind of become the crawlers to do spice mining, but you can also see him get very uncomfortable with the whole project. Um, so I think that resonance Kelsey is real. Yeah, that's such a maybe. That's a I hadn't thought of that, Kelsey either. That's such like a, maybe like the like the purest one of the purest analogs. And if you're just like looking to like map it directly onto, yeah, that's that's really good. And also, Tim, I hadn't I hadn't considered that either. Because yeah, it was. I mean, we're talking. You, I mean, you know, sixty five, nineteen sixty five was when he's coming out it was like the pacific northwest was a very different place then um and it would have been a lot different to 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 live there now how about you know so so that that's kind of the fremen piece and the indigenous piece and sort of like this anti government now what about how does that you know what 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 about these other sort of the feudal house kind of structure where is that in his mind i mean we've kind of also got we've talked about chome and and how that's basically opec but where is he coming up with this sort of um you know it's house atreides house harkonnen and kind of governed by the emperor loosely like is there any analog to that or did he just think that would be kind of cool i mean my own sense is that he's such an anti-liberal Right. Like the welfare state liberalism is the thing that he is extremely uncomfortable with. And there's a moment in the later Dune novels where one of the characters and one of the characters that you're supposed to agree with says feudalism is the appropriate governing structure uh, for for a diverse galaxy. <laughs> like, shit, man, just like say it. All right. That's uh, I don't really think what's exciting about Frank Herbert and what makes him work now is like if you're dissatisfied with liberalism or at least pessimistic about it, like Frank Herbert has, has got your back. Um, but but for any number of different reasons. And I think that feudalism. I mean, it's not a surprise that, you know, Parks and Rec doesn't really do it for us anymore. I mean, it's comforting, but it's like not our world. Like Game of Thrones is our fucking world. You know, we're just like, yes, that's how politics works. And I think Dune is is much more in that, you know, Games of Thrones kind of vibe um, than, you know, and, and that seems appropriate at the moment. Interesting. So it's like for like people resonate with worlds where it's anti-liberal and that it's saying, well, they, their sense of it as they're going is that it's saying liberalism has promised these things and has not delivered them. It's failed. Here's some other system where maybe you don't like it, but it could work better or it could be something more exciting. Right. And I don't think that means that we're all endorsing this, but I think it just means that imaginatively, like we're like, yeah, we're it's, it's time to think through non-liberal worlds, either because we're living through them and hating them or because we're, you know, longing for them or some version of that. But, um, and I think that's why the foundation, which is basically sort of a technocratic fantasy about control. You're you're, like a weird thing for the moment. Your great, your great hero in foundation is a mathematician. Yeah. Right. (laughs) This is a, this is a common theme too. Like Philip Dick plays with this a lot. The idea that, um, after there's been some sort of great migration of Mars and, and other solar systems, um, you know, what's left is, is feudalism that you have landed estates run by, you know, powerful individuals and, you know, the, the, the bulk of the population is serfs. And I think that is a, like, there are a couple of things going on there. One is that, for somebody who's the style of libertarian 
Herbert was feudalism is the natural natural extension of their politics. I mean, we live in a world with Peter Thiel in it. You know, like we are tracking. We are tracking that way. It's a it's a it's an exaggeration. It's a caricature. It's a fictional lens on it. But there is a natural connection between those two things that I think he saw earlier than a lot of other people. And, you know, part of the reason you get that in science fiction is just, I think, because of who was writing it. You've got these um, kind of staunchly individualistic white guys who want to be left alone with their guns and harems and you know whatever it is exactly that they're into. They're going to orbit these ideas and the better of them, like Herbert or, or Dick are going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to see a bit into the future. They're going to see the logical extrapolation of some of these ideas and, and play with it in, in ways that are disturbing and should be disturbing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think if we are on track, I mean, if this, if we get another Dune sequel and that one does a lot, maybe we are on track for what will be the perfect, like uh cinematic cultural product of our time, which is like Timothy Chalamet doing genocide, like across the galaxy. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, speaking of, speaking of galactic characters <clears throat> doing genocide, uh, motherboard staff writer, Gita Jackson is in the chat and asked a pretty good question. Um, do y'all think this is also why Dune is resonating with audience right now and Eternals is not? This new Marvel movie about, which none of us have seen, but I think we can all kind of figure out the arc of it, is about these superheroes that have been on Earth for, for generations and have watched all the bad stuff happen and have not stopped it. Um, yeah. Also, like... There's, I also feel like that's an extension of the uh, of that imagination thread that we we're talking about, right? Like where in a lot of the Marvel movies, it's reimagining conflicts where you know who's good and who's bad, and adding like a little zest that makes it complicated in in the universe. Like, hey, one of the Eternals helped make the bomb, you know, or something like that, right? Um, versus an, a novel way of thinking about people's conflicting desires and wants and needs and the systems that they'll build out of it or resist in response to that. Like the, the latter is much more interesting than like, um, here's a bunch of like super models who have powers. You'll never, you can't imagine. And they did nothing. Well, like right. billions of people have suffered all across human history. It's it's like foundation, right? It's like yeah, foundation yeah. is superhero. It's like, oh, we wait it out, you know, and eventually just trust us, the super beings, and we will but set things right eventually. He's done the math. You know? Right. When that movie is out. When that movie is out, the fans will mobilize and you know, it'll feel like it'll resonate. It, I don't know if it will, but it will feel like it. The eternal stands who've just been fucking waiting for this moment. It's the Marvel people. Yeah, there's Marvel just stands. there's Marvel stands is what it Look, is. I love Marvel. I've been getting so into specifically the X-Men comics and the reboot that they started two years ago or three years ago in Krakoa and using that as a way to get more into the comics. And I love it. I've been watching all the movies like uh, one of you were talking about earlier, but like the fandom is something else. Really fucking something else. <laughs> when I saw this uh, robot army. And so I don't even talk about liking the Marvel stuff because of because if also it's like I've seen them jump down people's throats if they like have a different interpretation of something in a way that I mean I guess goes with the territory for you know being online and having takes and such but it's just like when for example when um like we all joked about when j that director was like oh well you know when two people love each other they fuck and so I'm gonna have two of the superheroes fuck and then 
uh, a bunch of people were like, well, oh, that's, uh, I don't know if you, you didn't have to bring sex into this, into this story about superhumans who don't exist in real life. You know, why do they have to fuck now? Take this um, core you know, part of being a human and just remove it from the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, really I, I, I do think those two things, Eternals and Dune, I think he was right. Like they, they play off each other a lot. It's, um, you know, it's, there's there's probably been a little bit of a backlash brewing on on Marvel for a while. I don't think there's a lot you see when you look around the world that suggests that people with these awesome and incredible powers would um you know use them for our collective benefit and uh steer history in the right direction. And so there's something very com- I mean, you know, Dune is among other things, it's a superhero origin story. I mean, he has um very specific powers that in a different context you could put him in spandex with a logo on his chest and it would work just fine. Um, and seeing that play out in uh, a much scarier way and in a way that is um, not necessarily for the benefit of all is, is a good, you know, you know, that's always a well-grounded view of things, but it's also <laughs> specifically right now, it's kind of a revisionist look at how we look at our power fantasies and that's something Herbert was playing with. I mean, one of the justifications for the genocide we keep talking about, it's, it, you know, it's very consistently stated that the visions of the future show that the alternative is worse. The alternative is the extinction of all mankind. And um, the choice, you know, it's a binary choice between the murder of however many billions and the extinction of the species. And, you know, that's that's when you start getting up into... You know what would Superman do? What, you know right. what would what would this power? Right. I mean, it's a, look like. This is a commentary, right? It's a commentary on a technocratic ordering of the world, right? In Foundation, a mathematician plots out the the future of humanity, and in Dune, a mathematician stands there and calculates how much spice it costs to buy an F thirty five. This is sort of the oh, difference right. of how far can you get with like just trusting the logic and existing rules of order as stated without understanding um, really the fallibility of human. And like, there's a lot of fallibility. There's a lot of like propensity for evil. There's a lot of maneuvering. Lido knows he's going into a trap and is playing very well by the rules, but is still undone because he is not aware of the full breadth of the game against him. And it's much easier to read the news and assume, Oh, people in power don't understand things. Or if they do, they're maneuvering cynically than it is to, read the news and think, oh yeah, the people trusted with power are making good long-term decisions. And I think that's that's it. That's the core of the resonation. It's easy to feel when an empire crumbles and see the empire visible in that crumbling. And when it's going well, you don't really perceive it nearly as much. Totally agree. Yeah. I think that is actually like a, probably a pretty good uh, note to, to end this on. We've gone for just about an hour. Um, with the crumbling empire and the uh, crumbling uh, response to Eternals and uh, the rise of genocidal Timothy Chalamet. It always comes horizon. back to infrastructure. And genocidal Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> yeah. Spice and both. That's right. Uh Yes. So, uh, th- thanks everybody. This was this was really great. Uh, really great note to to end this this exploration of all things Dune. On um, special thanks to uh, to Tim and for, uh, for 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 being my uh, my my co pilot, my my rock amid the spice. 
Um, and, and thank you to Ed and to uh, Matt and to Kelsey and Daniel for, for dropping by today. If anyone else has any last thoughts on Dune, now's the time to utter them into the streams. Um, I just hope that uh, someone somewhere who's close to Denis or will convince him he's got to do Children of Doom, and then God Emperor of Doom, and then Chapter House, and then Heretics. So just go I completely away. agree with that. This looks Ooh, like I... this looks like a man's <laughs> life work to me for the rest he's, of his he, life. He just doesn't know it yet. He just doesn't know it. And Jason Momoa, they, I don't know what kind of skincare routine they'll get him on, but, you know, get on that. <laughs> oh. Well, they'll just clone Jason Momoa over and over again. To keep having okay. him play a cloned Duncan Idaho over and over again, right? That's how you yeah, do it. Oh. Well, we've positioned ourselves very well. Then we can all quit our day jobs and just become full-time Dune streamers. Dune casters? Chart. It's Dune yeah. casters. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Okay. Maybe extra Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thanks to everyone for uh, joining us. Yeah. I'm going to play yeah. some outro music. We're going to see how this goes. Cool. Oh, look at that. Ooh, yeah. It worked. That's good. Oh yes, and these will all be available as podcasts too. So they are uh, they are then. already hitting the a cast stream. This one will probably come out tomorrow because I'm very hungry and I haven't eaten lunch yet. Uh, okay. gonna, <laughs> so I've got other tasks to do, but tomorrow this will be out as a podcast. It's good. It's good. It's good. Yeah. All right. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, Thank everyone. you. No. 